so hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Tedgeboards, the world famous Tedgeboards Audio podcast. I'm normal man, just innocent man. And I podcast with hmm. Darren Nash. Darren Nash, that guy. News from the world of Darren and John. Uh, any news for the world of John, John no. or Darren, whatever your name is? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, just no. no. No book sale news. No, no. you haven't no. been absorbed into the AI collective. Um, no. Um, well, I got some damn news, I'll tell you. So... <laughs> <laughs> news, uh, damn news, and damn the news. Go on. Yeah, so we're, we're speaking on the 5th of May. And obviously, well, have we spoken about Prehistoric Planet Season 2? Prehistoric Planet Season 2 debuts on Apple TV Plus on um, May 22nd. That's the first episode, and then they release a subsequent episode on each uh, day that week. At this point, obviously, I'm, you know, I, I will not be talking about it publicly. Can't really do that until, well, I can't talk about it on a podcast anyway. I've been to various events, which is why I got stuff like this in my office. <laughs> Prehistoric Planet poster. Yeah. Giant. So I've been to, I've been to events. There are various events happening. And uh, those of you interested will hear more about them uh, over coming weeks. All very exciting. Uh, trailer for Prehistoric Planet 2 has been released to, you know, to an appropriate amount of, like, positivity. So thank you to those of you who are very positive, and that's the vast majority of the audience. And then there's those other people. There's a <laughs> tie. What is the miracle? What a peak. I'm not going to talk about that. Don't dwell on that. There's anyway, no um, yeah, yeah. The other thing is the uh, Lyme Regis Fossil Festival was just held weekend gone, and I attended... Not fun because <laughs> because I, I did enjoy it, but I gave a talk on this book, Ancient Sea Reptiles, published by the Natural History Museum in the UK and Smithsonian Books in the US, and did a book signing afterwards. And do you want to know what the funniest thing about it was? What's that? that is that how many people turn up to a talk by Darren Nature about ancient marine reptiles? It's hundreds. Yeah. And how many people could fit into the room? <laughs> About 15. 15? <laughs> so, that's, I don't know. It's, yeah, you it can't was, really count, can you? But I yeah. can't. It was low. It was less than, it was somewhere between 15 and 30. It was like, it was about 20 people. It was really low. And um, so loads of people came to the room and loads of people got turned away from the room, including my own family. <laughs> I couldn't get them <laughs> into the talk. It was like, wow. So... Thanks to the tiny exclusive number of people that did show up. But um and it was only meant to be like a ten minute talk anyway. So what can you say in uh, 10, 15 minutes? I ended up talking for half an hour. Because hey. So on the subject of ancient marine oh, so, uh, some other stuff. So I've got got my agenda here. Spinosaurs is also on the, the list here because myself. So we have to Well, don't worry. Don't worry. Okay. It's very brief. Okay. It's it's not published yet, so this is like a preemptive pre-teaser teaser trailer <laughs> for the actual event. Uh, um, Chris Barker, Neil Gosling, and myself—we're part of Neil Gosling's evolution and paleobiology lab at University of Southampton. Uh, we've just had a new spinosaur paper accepted. So, as some of you will know, I think covered it. Have we covered it on the Textbook Podcast. The new spinosaurs we've been working on the last several years. 
We published two new taxa in 2021. We've published yeah, an I additional. We yeah, I can't tell what we've done on the podcast and what you've just told me about. Well, yeah, doesn't. Yeah, your memory. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the latest instalment. Obviously, this year we published the the brain paper, which we spoke about. And, oh. uh, so yeah, I really like it when the results of studies back up stuff you already think is true. Mm. And now I'm currently reading, it's a slight tangent, but it shouldn't be too long. I'm currently reading Alan Fiducci's Romancing the Birds and Dinosaurs, which we've mentioned a couple of times before. I really, really dislike it very much. I'm glad that it exists. And I'll say this when I actually get around to finishing my review, because I'm writing a review of it as I read it. I'm glad that it exists because I like reading weird stuff. But it makes me very angry, his book. And what I want to make clear when I actually do finally get around to talking about it, you know, on the blog and uh, as appropriately on social media is I want my criticism of the book to be framed not as a like we're on opposing sides of the debate and therefore like I'm biased because I think that I'm on one side and you're on the other side. And I'm talking about the, you know, the issue of bird ancestry on that. I think he's absolutely wrong, but I don't want to frame it like that. Instead, I want to frame it on basic frame it. I want to talk about the fact that when it comes to how we do science, what things do we sort of agree upon and what things do we kind of know are normal in the process of science? And he comes across as absolutely infuriating because his his shtick throughout centers on two things. The first thing is science is finished. It's like we know the, the the results he'll say many many times on on a hundred issues that are the subject of debate although ordinarily with like a vast majority of people that agree on one thing and then a tiny minority of people who who argue something else he says that in all those cases at the side he's on this has now been proven or this is done so it's like that's the end of the debate mm-hmm. so for, uh, one example uh, there's many many examples one example is the group of bird-like dinosaurs called oviraptorosaurs the consensus view among those of us who work on these animals is that oviraptorosaurs are outside the clade that includes birds and their closest relatives. So therefore, they're relevant to bird ancestry, but they're not themselves weird birds. But there's one study, which is a flawed study. There's one study that did find uh, the one phylogenetic study. I'm not going to talk about the Greg Paul stuff here, but there's this one phylogenetic study where some authors did find over aptosaurs to be nested within birds and on the basis of that he says he'll say stuff like of course now we know they've been proven to be birds eh, like case oh, closed Aaron. case, case closed. closed done i rest my cases and like he does that repeatedly and it's like you're saying that like the results of a single phylogenetic study and bear in mind you don't even believe in phylogenetics anyway alan fiducia <laughs> well, he doesn't believe in Quidistics. the process of Quidistics. well he doesn't believe in phylogenetic systematics slash statistics yeah he doesn't think it's like got any value at all it, at least when it produces results he don't doesn't like he doesn't seem to have a problem with it for the birds that he's interested in or c- claims to be interested in um yeah it's like it's like that it's like science is done and the uh, so that was that was one thing I really dis- disagree with, and I've completely forgotten the second one. This is like uh, I, I should have written it down. Oh, what a waste of time this is! I said it was a tangent. Um, why am I even talking <laughs> about this anyway? Why? I don't know. I don't know. It's not on the agenda. 
I know why. I know why. Right. Looking back at the agenda, it's this, it's, I said, okay, I started this by saying that we like it when results confirm what we already thought is true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Now, like, I'm not... So in Fiducia's book, he says that, that the people that support the birds are dinosaurs model are doing... Oh, uh, what does he call it? He's got he's got like a catchy, cute little cute little phrase for it. He basically says that people are doing science by confirmation or something like that. They're basically like they're always looking the they're looking to prop up something that they already ex- accept is true. And he says he, he says this is like a bad way to do science. And I'm like, it is? <laughs> it, it, question mark? <laughs> no, it's not. It's like if we if we like look at something and the results like so you've got to assume that scientists are honest now we know from the history of science that people aren't honest and we also know that scientists are humans and therefore they will do things that you know make them look better or make their previous results look better we know that for sure but even so even with those caveats in mind the majority of people study something it's like oh it matches previous results well that's great you spin it that way you spin like oh this new discovery matches what we already thought was true the majority of science is like that. You're backing up stuff you already thought was true. The more interesting and more left field, more surprising results are like, oh, we didn't know this was true. And I would say that like all the scientists that I'm aware of and those I've worked with are like, like, wow, this is a surprising result. This does actually challenge or overturn an existing model. And when that is the case, people report it as so. But he's saying that we don't do that, that we're only looking to prop up something we already think is true. And I fundamentally disagree that that's the game that people in this particular field are playing. That's that's where I was going with this. Because if you say that, oh, it's great, it backs up what we thought was true, you're meant to feel bad. But like, no, you shouldn't. It's like, that's a part of the scientific process. Yeah. And also, I think you said earlier that he's sort of arguing that if you, you shouldn't assume things are true as well, right? Like research is done assuming that... Um you know, birds are phylogenetically dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, but that's normal too, right? You've got to assume some things when you're doing science. You've got to assume a whole bunch of things are true, which might actually be subject to overturning at some point. But, you know, not every study has to go back to the fundaments of the universe. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think he's really got anything. It's just, he's just well into Cranksville now. So it's not I really... Um, like- I, I want to talk about this at length. This isn't the time and place, but let's say <laughs> one one final thing, which is that it. I I feel bad for saying it, but the entire book reads like a creationist manifesto. In that create when in any debate with creationists, any discussion with creationists, they're always like, "Oh yeah, well, what about Piltdown Man? Oh yeah, well, what about the Hopkinsville Goblins? Oh yeah, what about you know like." you know gish gallop like what about this nonsense what about this irrelevant nonsense what about this other bit what about nazis what about racism yeah (laughs) Yeah. like uh, well uh, yeah okay those are things and yeah they were somehow connected but they're also not relevant to like the main he's he's that he's like the the opening stuff in the book he's like what about steve brasati yeah what about that guy it's like well well, steve's one researcher why do you hate him so much (laughs) what about akula dentavis yeah that's that's like a lizard that's not even a bird yeah that's right (laughs) well what what about archaeoraptor huh what about archaeoraptor yeah that also is like one individual fossil who cares it's irrelevant you know that's his game so throughout the book is dishon it's dishonest it's done to like deliberately sow seeds of dissent and here we go tangent tangent right stop there so there i think go. i'm gonna have to get this book because it sounds like fun 
it's maddening it's also very poorly edited like the same sections of text repeated twice and if he wants you to believe <laughs> really? something yeah he just keep telling you something he just keep on like one final example like if he wants you to accept a certain view of something he'll say uh, so again I, I can only do it if i give an example he wants to he wants us to believe that the uh unusual triassic reptile from kyrgyzstan longi squama which is well known as a total enigma. It's like, what the hell is going on with that animal? He wants that to be somehow relevant to bird ancestry. And for it to be relevant to bird ancestry, it doesn't just have to be sort of vaguely, vaguely avian. It also has to like be a tree climber, according to his like preferred model of bird origins. And it also has to be indulging in something that's related to flight. So he and his colleagues want Longisquama to be an arboreal glider or parachuter so every single time he mentions longisquama every single time without exception it's the parachutist longisquama or longisquama the parachuter the parachutist long and like by the sort of like fourth time you've read it you're like well i don't think longisquama was a parachutist at all in fact we don't even know this is this is kind of based on the idea that its giant dorsal plumes have an aerodynamic function which cool idea guys but like to 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 quote you know, to throw a thing back at him, like, where's the evidence? He says all the time, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Mm. Again, like a creationist. Um, so, so he, he repeated statements that make, that imply that some things aren't are true just because he wants to believe that. Don't worry. Stop there. So, right, we're, we're, going... only, we're only half an hour in and we're possibly going to get to the main subject. So uh, we're still talking about ancient sea reptiles because it's still a relatively recently <laughs> published book and I'm still doing like lectures about it and stuff. And in previous episodes, we covered what... We did a plesiosaur one. Did we do an ichthyosaur one? Hmm. I don't remember. But, I don't remember either. Yeah, this time we're going to talk about the uh, what we affectionately term the... Triassic weirdos, although I don't like that term. I don't call them Triassic weirdos. It's highly offensive. You just These, well in the ch in the chapter themselves, they're called the lesser known groups because it's true. They're sort of they're what some people called also rans. So like these multiple. <laughs> if there's like five main groups of seagoing reptiles during the Mesozoic, the so-called age of the dinosaurs, then alongside them. Mostly during the Triassic, but also during the Jurassic and Cretaceous as well, there's these various other groups, some of which are independent invasions of the marine realm, and others of which are actually related to, or they are involved in the ancestry of the big famous groups, as in the plesiosaurs and the ichthyosaurs. So, yeah, let's talk about them. And... In this will be real quick because this is like a hugely diverse clade with many. Sorry, not even a clade. It's a hugely diverse bunch of animals mm. with no doubt differing um, lifestyles and well, that's what it's going to be pathways. So it's just going to be really, really quick. It's going to be edited highlights, <laughs> and and we'll start off by saying that um, that first of all, a lot of these groups live in the Triassic. So that's the first geological age of the mesozoic what is it 289 to 200 million 245 to 200 million years ago something along along, along those lines 233 i think yeah okay i know the triassic the triassic is about 50 million years long so all of these sections of time in 
ch- big chunks of time in the Mesozoic. They're massive, 50 million years long. Um, yes. And at this time in the Triassic, of course, the continents are united as Pangaea. What I often say about Pangaea, and I'm going to say it again, is that Pangaea is relatively well known among lay people, not just among like science fans and scientists. And I think as a consequence, because people know that was like the start of like dinosaur times, there's a kind of belief that that's the ancestral state for the continents. And the continents started out as Pangaea before they split up and resulted in the modern configuration. And that, of course, is completely wrong. It's kind of like the continents have like collided and broken apart and coalesced and very complicated. All these different things have happened throughout the uh, several billion years of Earth history. Continental movement having gone on for, I don't know, two billion years or something. And at various times, the continents have coalesced and form a single supercontinent. They've basically done it more than once. So the situation during the Triassic isn't like state zero. That's not like how things started out. It just so happens the Triassic is this time of the grand unification. So Pangaea, you should imagine it as a giant C-shaped supercontinent stretching north to south. So narrowest across the equator and like sort of deepest like north to south. And this means a couple of really interesting things about the world at that time. One of them is it means that most of the world is covered by ocean. So this vast, um, like, you know, we all know, we all think of the Pacific as large, but Panthalassa, the sort of ancestral super ocean, even bigger. And from the point of view of like marine animals, I kind of like to think, oh, wow, the world was one giant playground for fishes. <laughs> but it wasn't because open ocean is just awful. <laughs> it's like the, yeah. the open ocean is a barren wasteland and you have to be quite specialized to make a living there. And lots of the things that are present in the open ocean today that allow animals to make a living today weren't present in the Triassic, as in like various groups of plankton and various groups of like pelagic fishes and whatnot. So yeah, this is actually the worst mix for both land and the quantity of land and sea animals because the most fertile bits are the coasts of things and right. less coastline. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the second thing. So there's the giant super ocean which is mostly barren, and then if you've got a, a, a super continent, the amount of coastline is proportionally tiny mm. relative to when obviously you've got lots of continental fragmentation like you do today. So a lot of the things that that we're talking about here are actually quite at the moment, like arm wavy, like for me to say, oh, yeah, or for us to both to say that the the oceans were relatively barren. It's like, where's your where's your facts? Where's your data on that? It's like, well, no one's actually, to my knowledge, I'm, you know, I don't peruse the plankton literature and whatnot. I know you do, (laughs) but um, (laughs) man, I just can't get enough of that. (laughs) It's like at the moment, these are like somebody needs to like look into this and, and really actually. Uh, study this so um so yeah if there's if <laughs> somebody there's, but not you not that's outside my wheelhouse isn't it it's a that would be like a paleoecological paleoclimatological like you know big big data set kind of study it'd yeah? be quite interesting what is the productivity of triassic seas so productivity might actually be like you know net average actually low so maybe the Triassic was a terrible time to be a seagoing thing. But then having said that, obviously the animals that lived uh, around the coast of Pangaea seem to have done pretty well for themselves because there's lots of them and they're very diverse and they kept repeatedly going into 
the water. So um, in places like uh, like around the sort of shores of uh, what's now southern China and the what's now Europe, uh, loads of, uh, you know, groups of invertebrates and fishes and also numerous marine reptiles. So Panthalassa is covering most of the globe. And then if you, like I say, imagine Pangea as a sea, well, inside the curve of the sea, that's Tethys. And Tethys is bordered on its northern side by like sort of, you know, Western Europe, and southern china and then it's the southern border it then uh along the the northern fringes of the sea of pangaea so the south of tethys is bordered by like northern india and australia so some animals appear to be living along the whole of this coastal margin or in theory they did because we've only if you only know them from europe and southern china in the north there's every reason to think they would have also occurred on like the shores of northern India, northern Australia. And we've got clues that that was the case for some of these animals and others. We don't know that because the fossil record is not good enough. So um, so that's like a little bit of kind of like background for the, the sort of setting. Um, now, the Triassic follows this super gigantic mass extinction event at the end of the Permian which is always said to be like the biggest mass extinction of all time. It's estimated that about 96% of things at the species level died out. The Triassic itself has a couple of mass extinctions at the end. There's a thing called the Ladinian crisis, which is some millions of years before the end of the Triassic. And then there's the end, is it the end Carnian crisis? There's like two extinction events that, that knock out a lot of groups before they get before you get into the Jurassic. But then Permian event means that loads of things that are doing quite well in the permian don't make it into the triassic so if we're now interested in reptiles the thinking has mostly been that all of the triassic marine reptiles go into the water after the end permian event and diversify blah 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 blah. There's, they're a triassic mm. event that's what we conventionally thought but now it's like a couple of recent discoveries have cast doubt on this so in talking about the marine reptiles from the Mesozoic, from the age of dinosaurs, like I always, you know, I generally call them Mesozoic marine reptiles. But when you're talking about the, all these fossil marine reptiles, you have to say they're mostly from the Mesozoic, because, but they're not all, because there's actually like a couple of Permian groups. So they're not super big, not super impressive. But in the Permian, there's a group called the Mesosaurs. Not to be confused with mosasaurs, mesosaurs. <laughs> they're like um, they're known from uh, southern Africa, like Namibia and South Africa. They're known from Brazil, Uruguay, elsewhere. Um, I think they're from a few other places, but um, they're basically sort of like across, uh, you know, the edges of southern Pangaea, um, either in coastal waters or in giant hypersaline inland seas, actually, and. There's some anatomical reasons for thinking that they might be related to ichthyosaurs and other groups that are clearly like a big deal in the Triassic. And if that's so, well, then straight away, you're saying that mesosaurs or modified mesosaurs survived into the Triassic to evolve into ichthyosaurs. But then you've also got now, as published just this year, there is an ichthyosaur known from pretty awful remains like a couple of vertebrae but still good enough to show that it's almost definitely an ichthyosaur not a tiny like sort of prototype one as well it's kind of like an animal sort of two three meters long 
So there's ichthyosaurs in the Permian. So this means that at least some of the groups that we associate with the Mesozoic, Mesozoic, actually originated in the Permian and survived the end Permian event. So um, that's another thing you always have to mention. Um, and while like I'm not gonna like I'll stop talking about Permian stuff there because you could talk for half an hour about Mesosaurs. There's so much to say about the really interesting group. There's a big section on them in the book. So. We move on to Sauropterygians. Do you know what they are? Sauropterygians? Yeah. The plesiosaur, pliosaur sort of Yeah, claimed, it's, that, right? it's, that, it's that group. So plesiosaurs are the best known Sauropterygians, but in the Triassic, they're one... They, uh, plesiosaurs do appear at the end of the Triassic, but during the early and middle and late Triassic, surviving to close to the end, but not necessarily the, the end, there's the placodonts. That name means flat toothed, because they've got those. They've mostly got big, like rounded, crushing teeth that they use these to feed on shellfish. Some of them look kind of superficially turtle-like. There's the pachypleurosaurs, which are sort of mostly less than a meter long. If you kind of like imagine a generic swimming reptile with a longish neck and a longish tail, and it sort of does a bit of like paddling with its limbs and grabs fishes and stuff. Pachypleurosaurs kind of fit into that mold. There's the nothosaurs, which are kind of sort of like a big pack of pleurosaur that's kind of like feels like it's got a bit of flavor of plesiosaur about it. Can be really big, like up to six or seven meters long. We spoke about giant ones um, many, many episodes back on the podcast. They, many nothosaurs, although not all, many have got like a very long, very narrow snout with really impressive, like interlocking mesh-like caniniform teeth at the front. And they're almost certainly like using rapid sideways snapping and sort of forming like a cage or, or impaling squids and fishes and stuff like that. And then there are the pistosaurs, which are not a, they're one of those groups that definitely include the ancestry of plesiosaurs, which actually means that plesiosaurs are highly modified pistosaurs. So pistosaurs are kind of like a, like a sort of grade they're like a a set of taxa that are um what we call plesions they're like outside of plesiosauria but as you go uh towards plesiosaur on the cladogram they become increasingly plesiosaur like their name which doesn't really plesiomorphic plesiosaurs anyway they're if it was okay so some paleontologists inadvertently misapplied the terms stem and crown for, for clarity, the term stem and crown in phylogeny are used to differentiate fossil taxa from living taxa. The crown is for living things, and it's called the crown because, and the reason that people have like delimited it as a thing separate from the stem is because for the crown group taxa, you know loads of stuff that's really useful because you can actually go and look at them and cut them up. And you don't for the stem ones. So that's why this this differentiation between stem taxa and crown taxa. Paleontologists have roundly misunderstood this. And they've thought that the crown just refers to like the cool ones that we all grew up knowing about. (laughs) And the stem ones, they're just like the prototype weirdos. So people talk about like crown sauropterygians. And it's like, dude, there's no crown sauropterygians. It's literally not a thing. It can't be a thing. But that term is used in the literature. It's really... I'd, I'd rather people didn't do this, but they do. This is the sort of thing peer review should catch, but doesn't. It's really funny. Like, this sort of stuff is kind of annoying. Yes. 
so so yeah so under that complete misapplication of the term plesiosaurs like familiar plesiosaurs you know pliosaurus plesiosaurus elasmosaurus those guys they'd be like crown plesiosaurs don't and, don't reinforce it because if you say it enough that will become true <laughs> yeah, it's true yeah so uh, the the name pistosaur you know it, it doesn't sound so great in the english language apparently it comes from i've forgotten the exact etymology i did cover in the books of an interesting the first named one is pistosaurus from the german muschelkalk and its skull looks superficially like a wine bottle. And there's this word in Latin that means to drink from. And it's back in so this isn't this isn't well known again, but it's like back in olden times, as in like basically any pre-1920, people didn't explain the etymologies of names. They just said, and I shall call this Stupendosaurus Maximus. They didn't say, and that name means the maximum giant flex bro lizard. They didn't do that. So if someone yeah. comes up with something that's actually quite hard to understand, Pistosaurus, what does it mean? It takes like a, a scholar of language. And then, well, luckily we have someone in paleontology, a guy called Ben Chrysler. He's a, he's a really nice guy. Done, he's done a lot of this stuff. He's gone back and tried to work out the etymologies. And he thinks that Pistosaurus means drinkable lizard because it's based on the shape of the skull. It looks like a, looks like a wine bottle. So ha ha. Um, I'm a Christian von Meyer, the, the, the scientist. Uh, is Christian von Meyer? I think so. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it, a lot of these groups, a lot of these Triassic Sauropterygian groups, they're best known, they're historically, like, you know, they were first found in Germany in deposits like the Muschelkalk, which means muscle chalk, because there's a famous, like, bivalve fossil that's associated with it. I think it's Middle Triassic. And there were loads of these animals, and they were clearly really successful in, like, the shallow seas that covered continental europe uh the swiss alps uh so northern italy switzerland um yeah various places in germany uh I obviously haven't done my homework on specific locations but yeah there's lots of them and then from probably the 1990s to present they've also turned out to be like unsurprisingly the european stuff is western tethys if you remember what i said about tethys being enclosed within the sea of pangaea the capital, capital the letter c not swimming around water c um yeah europe is like western tethys but the same animals should exist in eastern tethys along that uh, margin northern margin of tethys and that's been confirmed by chinese fossils they found basically all the same groups and even the same genera as well as loads of other things that aren't present in europe so so yeah they're around the northern fringe of tethys and then there's also fossils from like um, places like Israel and Morocco, which demonstrate they're on the uh, far um, <laughs> directions. I really struggle <laughs> with directions. Western, they're on the western edge of Tethys, on the eastern border of Pangaea. And then what about the southern border? So what about like northern India and Australia? For that, like I say, there's just a few hints, a few suggestions they might be there. Um they probably were. So, was there any sort of like I don't know the um, um, border with when there was a the equator? You know, was was there any sort of problem with these animals getting around the through the equator? I guess at this time was it? Well, the Triassic's very long, so I should imagine that it changed. Yeah, but you know, let's see. Given that there's a 
basically one ocean and one landmass. Mm. The only border I can really think of for these animals that would last would be that the the climate of the of the um, equator was inhospitable or something. That's a great question. <laughs> Don't yeah. know the answer. <laughs> no idea. That's a really brilliant. I've, ne- I've I haven't really thought about that. Yeah, were I mean, equatorial waters in the modern oceans are famously mostly barren, apart from when you've got cold water currents from north or south um, crossing them. But yeah, pan, if Pangaea, like if it's going north to south, then obviously like the equator literally cuts right through the middle of it, or it's placed on the equator rather. So um, we just don't know. Don't know that. So that's a, that's an interesting question. Yeah, um, it might be that there's like mediating events, like sort of freshwater runoff from Pangaea, which uh, there must have been tons. If there's a supercontinent, there must have been like gigantic. Uh, well, I presume even in a even in a mostly desertified megacontinent, there's still going to be like tons of freshwater runoff and like giant estuaries and deltas and etc. Whether that whether any of those were close to the equator, that might be known. You'd have to be like a paleogeography expert to be on top of that. I don't know that off the top of my head. It's a good question. Yeah. And of course, we we tend to like these animals because they are they are really cool looking. I mean, I'm a real big fan of placodonts. Um, so placodonts they're they're one of the earliest sauropterygian groups to diverge. So in a, in a, in ways, they're kind of like the most they're closest to the ancestral condition of sauropterygians. So they're probably at least some of them are probably amphibious. They probably can walk around on land. Had they already developed viviparity? We actually don't know. We've got no data at all on placodonts. We do for other sauropterygian groups. So for pachypleurosaurs and nothosaurs, we've got specimens. We've either got specimens that have got like babies preserved in utero. They were, you know, mothers that were preparing to give birth. Or we've got tiny little babies um, that have been found in positions, which mean that they must have been like birthed alive. Or we've got indication from pelvic anatomy that they were given birth to live babies. But there's one study, and uh, I'm not going to talk about it in detail because I've forgotten pretty much all the details, including the names of the authors. And they basically found that in both of these groups, pachypleurosaurs and nothosaurs, there's pelvic anatomy, which indicates both egg laying and viviparity. Hmm. So it looks like... Now here, there's another interesting philosophical thing being the sorts of animals we are we unavoidably think of viviparity as like the best strategies like yes we're winning the game of pushing things out of the bodies of things that give birth (laughs) and the history of evolution shows that well it's a strategy but it's not like the end game it's not like everyone's evolving to be viviparous it's like viviparous is advantageous uh, you know, there's a time and a place for it, but so there is for overparity, and there's even cases. They're all a bit controversial, but there are cases where people think that animals went from viviparity to overparity, and in some cases it might be that viviparity is like the primitive condition because we all know of cases where we were talking about this for for frogs when we did that frog episode. Like, there's the frogs that just like produce a billion eggs, and it's like good luck, taddies, off you go into the into the uh thing like that seems more air quotes primitive 
than the system where you have like a tiny number and you look after them and like nurture them, sort of hand spoon feed them to adulthood. But it's the, you, you think that the the one involving lots of parental investment is the the more advanced strategy, but it's not the case. It's like it's actually proved more advantageous in the grand game of evolution to do the R strategy, have the babies feed from the environment, and just produce lots of them. One that's actually the more advanced uh, in that group of animals, and you could say the same for viviparity and oviparity. So sometimes viviparity is going to be such a burden that. Yeah. Yes, I think the um, what makes it especially look advanced in ocean animals is that there is a clear advantage in that you can become hyper adapted to the water if you don't have to lay eggs on land. Yeah. So, you know, we do tend to get later groups being definitely giving live birth, right? Because basically, if they're going to become hyper adapted, they have to. Yeah, if they want to become like. Well, if they want to become all oh, how teleological is that <laughs> if via evolution they they do evolve towards increasingly pelagic uh, mm. habits then it's certainly advantageous to be viviparous and... although it's interesting I, you don't get um because lots of animals obviously lay eggs in the water and you would think that something would evolve to do that but there you go uh yes something in the tetrapod world yeah so that this this is another tangent we could talk about at length because of course uh embryos inside eggshells tetrapod like air breathing animals obviously gas diffusion happens through the eggshell so therefore so the argument goes you can't be a tetrapod and lay your eggs in the water you've got to come on land if you lay eggs because the gas diffusion has to happen through the eggshell yeah. So therefore, hard rule, nobody can lay eggs in the water. Mm. Problem is, there's animals that do. There are turtles that lay their eggs underwater. And what seems to happen in those cases is that the oxygen requirements, well, not just, it's not just oxygen requirements, obviously it's getting rid of CO2 as well. It's like the gaseous requirements of the babies are minimal and they're sort of in a kind of like like really slow, like low metabolism ticking over thing for quite a long time. There's a, there's, uh, I think there's two species of Australian snake neck turtles that have, <clears throat> that are documented like egg layer underwater as subaqueous layers. And, so the fact that there's exceptions immediately is like mm. oh well if there's exceptions there then how can you be absolutely sure there aren't exceptions like if in, a, in a few other places here and there I mean obviously like I've said you know the evidence does indicate that Seropterygians are mostly viviparous but it just it seems that a few of them in the Triassic times were egg layers too or was it even you know there's living there's some living reptile species where there are there are egg laying individuals and there are viviparous individuals this is the case in the viviparous lizard which is one of our few lizards that we have here in the, the uk um some populations yeah are still are, are egg layers and i nearly said still egg layers mm. backing, backing up everything i just said about egg laying <laughs> not being uh so <laughs> yeah so um yeah and so that's so let me just finish on placodonts so placodonts they the sort of ones that appear to be earliest diverging in placodont phylogeny 
they they do have nodules on their skin and they have like a midline row of uh sort of bony oscals that would have been horn covered in life presumably and they look kind of like they look kind of like like a big fat marine iguana as if it was a little bit hybridized with a seal a seal or something or a walrus they're kind of like big chunky things with like sort of goofy big eyes and sticky out teeth that they use to wrench shellfish off seafloor we think and then uh, at some point some of them elaborated the dermal ossicles these like armor scoots and evolved basically into pseudo turtles they kind of like developed a complete dorsal carapace a complete ventral plastron and then some of them also evolved the lateral bridge, which is the side of the shell that that bridges the plastron with the carapace. And now they're living in a box. It's like a complete like look. I've got some little toy ones here. Mm. This is uh, there you go. That's an Austro- uh, uh one of the Chinese ones. That's the, just a turtle. Glyphoderma, yeah. It's a turtle-like. It's very turtle-like, isn't it? And then yeah. this is Henodus. And mm. yeah, I want to come back to Henodus if we've got time. So I really like placodonts. Really successful, doing very well in Tethian seas, but do not survive to the end of the Triassic. Uh, oh, but I have to say one other tangent, one other thing that's really interesting about marine reptiles is that, um, so living at the coastal fringes, that's all very well and fine and good. But what if you want to start using resources that are not just like a lot a lot of environments, when we talk about an environment like coastal environments, that's like kilometers of space to play with. You could be a coastal animal and live what to us is a long way from land, like 200 meters out from the actual edge of the land. That's still, you know, you're not affected too much by, you're not going to get stuck on the beach. You're still in water that's like, I don't know, 10 or more meters deep, but you're still a coastal animal. But what if you want to be an animal that's like foraging in rock pools and in lagoons, which is quite, those are useful environments. Those are sort of like environments where there's a lot of stuff going on. There's marine algae, there's loads of like coastal invertebrates that are living on rocks and such and in the pools. And repeatedly animals have like, you know, taken advantage of those habitats. There's so many fishes that do, um, among other groups. Well, marine reptiles have done this too. They've like, we want some of that action. We want to be hanging out in like rock pools and lagoons and stuff. But if you do that, it's actually one of these paradoxes it's a really fertile worthwhile habitat but it's also quite a difficult habitat because of course sometimes you get trapped in a pool and the water nearly evaporates and as the water like nearly evaporates it becomes hypersaline and at other times you're in your, your your pool or you know you're right next to the the land's edge and it rains or there's a ton of runoff and the water becomes nearly fresh there's also massive fluctuations in temperature. It can be really cold or it can be superheated in the, you know, in the heat of the day. So animals that are adapted for like this true form of coastal life, and I forget what the exact technical term is for it, but there is one, you know, literally right at the edge of the land, rock pools and such. Um, they are physiologically very tough. And it's been argued that among the toughest of the tetrapods that can live in this environment are turtles. And partly this is because they are physiologically and thermally insulated by the shell. So there's a bunch of living 
amphibious or semi-aquatic turtles. They're not true sea turtles. They're kind of like the diamondback terrapin and such, as North America, an American one. And um, they can persist in obviously i'm talking about air breathing animals so we don't have to worry about like oxygen content in the water but they're yeah. really tough in terms of like they, they can survive freezing they can survive like the water getting up to something that's ridiculously hot like even even to have water that's sort of like surface temperature of like 10 degrees c is ridiculously hot so they can survive like temperatures like you know high temperatures and they can live in like horrible water like really badly polluted sort of like high load of chemicals that you don't want to be swimming around in ordinarily just because you're like you know you'll accidentally absorb it through your skin or whatnot and uh, some of these turtles like the, they live in like sort of sewage outlets and latrine pits and all kinds of horrible stuff <laughs> so um at the end of the triassic i said there's these couple of like staged extinction events and Placodonts, the these they're called Siamodontoids, these like turtle-like, fully shelled um placodonts. Siamodontoid placodonts survive some of the extinction events and make it right to the very end of the Triassic. And it might be that their resistance to this coastal unpleasantness. <laughs> the, co- <laughs> the coastal unpleasantness hypothesis that might explain why they did that. And it might also explain the evolution of Henidus. Because Henidus, the weirdest placodon, I mean, you can see from this toy, John, and our listeners. Yeah, is, um, on this is, audio podcast. Yeah, it's broad and flat with a very complex carapace and plastron. It's got like a squared off snout. I said I wasn't going to talk about it because I wanted to leave it till last. The but whole thing is square, isn't it? The but whole sorry. thing, yeah. Well, it's the not, carapace it, is quite square as well it's an odd looking animal yeah it's weird little it's a crap on it it's like weird little stumpy face or squared off face and it and it does have like a few small button like malariform teeth right in the back but that's it It doesn't have any other teeth so it's actually like lost the key placodontness of placodons according to alan fiducia's rule it's therefore not a placodon because like if you lose your features you can't belong you can't be that kind of animal anymore Sorry, tangent. Don't, don't go there. Oh. Don't go there. But Henidus is actually not a marine marine reptile. It doesn't actually live in the sea. It lived in a gigantic semi-enclosed lagoon in what's now southern Germany. And there are various reasons from like studies that have been done on the sedimentology and the various invertebrates that live there. There are reasons for thinking that the conditions there fluctuated substantially sometimes it was like hypersaline and other times it was like basically fresh water and mm-hmm. again it's like to survive here you have to, you'd have to be physiologically tough and probably most animals couldn't and it's been argued that only of the marine reptiles only um cyamodontoid placodonts could do this so so it's a nice hypothesis um i yeah quite like it so olivier repels work for those of you familiar with triassic marine reptile publications yeah well the falsificationist in me likes it because you've only got to find a couple of a couple of scrappy fossils of other things <laughs> and it's it's falsified so great it's a good hypothesis yeah. yes yeah and if such <laughs> things are found we're just ah, yeah yeah exceptions, exceptions some, some... that one fell in from space yeah, it was washed in and look it's dead now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> look it died <laughs> 
Um, Hypothesis proven. Uh, so it's that's a, yeah, that's a quick and, and again. So the whole point of well, not the whole point, but like talking about this this entire subject. So these Triassic Sauropterygians is they haven't really been given fair justice. Like there's no equal rights for Triassic Sauropterygians in the in the existing literature. It's like people get they get they get listed they get mentioned very briefly without people really talking about a lot of these things that i think make them really interesting and i in my humble opinion and i made a point of doing this in my agency reptiles book it's like there's a pretty substantial section here on all of these animals the only the only other place that you would get like several pages on nothosaurs and placodonts and pachydurosaurs is if you like collected all the primary literature and good luck basically if you're so it seems like Sauropterygians actually lost a lot of diversity over the Triassic. And yeah. then what we're left with is kind of a remnant of what they had yes. in a more particular sort of specialised way. Yes, nicely put. So this is a quite familiar story in the history of life, isn't it? It's like early on, although we're talking about 50 million years, it's not early on at all, it's a good run. Early on in the history of a group, they explore lots of niches <laughs> they do lots of interesting things and there's a lot of anatomical diversity or disparity depending on you know who you talk to which disparity is the word for anatomical diversity <laughs> uh, i know the, the, variation. the specialized <laughs> yeah. words for the yeah in english they mean very similar things yes and then of the so let's say let's say there's seven different body plans then the bad times come and only one of the body plans survives so and that's and here we're talking about plesiosaurs. Plesiosaurs are the only Stropterygian group that survive into the Triassic. So far, sorry, into the Jurassic, so far as we know at the moment. And then everything else for the rest of the Mesozoic. So that is a hundred and thirty more than hundred and thirty million years. It's all plesiosaurs. So you could say, well, from then on, it was all boring and nothing ever changed. Which of course isn't true because plesiosaurs themselves then became phenomenally diverse. But they didn't recapture that diversity, sorry, disparity that was present in the Triassic. So, yeah, it's a bit like saying birds are the only surviving dinosaurs and therefore like most of dinosaur diversity was lost. That doesn't feel fair to birds, but it's also true. It's so true. It's... Yeah, and I, I think actually the, the diversity disparity confusion is because actually they are philosophically uh, shaky and we mean the same thing actually um uh, so... well, it's, it's another example of people developing a convention for something that isn't sensible because yeah. they want they want diversity to mean species level yeah numbers Which... and not anatomical yeah. variation yeah i know but it, it, it's not what it means in english yeah, and, um, yeah. It's, yeah. they have diverged is what we mean right I think yes. um yeah anyway that's a that's a side tangent at best yeah yeah so so yeah all of these guys they did not uh, so plesiosaurs did originate from among pistosaurs in the late uh triassic we do have we do have triassic plesiosaurs and of course plesiosaurs go to extremes in terms of like using the two uh flipper pairs which pistosaurs and nothosaurs were probably doing that, but plesiosaurs are way more specialised for it, and plesiosaurs are way more pelagic. Like any group of marine tetrapods, they are in some way still, their ecology is in some way still related to what's going on in the land. They do require, you know, runoff from the land for their environments to work, but they're the most divorced from the land 
of all the Sauropterygians. And yeah, the the most pelagic. So uh, it's interesting yeah. that they're the ones that are stable and persist for so long. Um, you would think that, yeah, I guess. Well, yeah, maybe it's because they can. I think that would be the most uh, vulnerable of the, um, yeah, of the of the yeah. hyper. What what do you call like a broad set of niches? Because a niche is kind of meant to be one thing, isn't it? But yeah, that, yeah, I don't know that that list of niches yeah. uh, <laughs> i don't know yeah meta niche <laughs> so i've also written down hoopasukians uh that's a triassic group that hang on hang on before we start on another group we've got yeah. five minutes left i know well i was just gonna say there's hoopasukians and they look sort of like prototype ichthyosaurs again they're not very big it's sort of like about a meter long and it's recent studies have confirmed they they almost certainly are like proto ichthyosaurs they're early members of the ichthyosaur lineage so uh, ichthyosaurs but but if that's true hoopasukians must go back to the permian if they're a late permian ichthyosaurs then finally i wanted to say that um we've so we've just discussed some of the diversity that exists in the triassic but there's several other groups that are interesting and strange and they might be allied to sauropterygians they might be allied to the hoopasukian ichthyosaur clade but they might not be they might be doing their own thing so let's just mention first first of all I wanted to say Henidus because Henidus is really interesting not just for all the reasons I mentioned but because its skull morphology indicates that it's not doing what the other placodons are doing it's not like breaking up shellfish and stuff so the relictual malariform teeth at the back might be used for crushing but that's not their key role along the broad leading edge of the the both the upper and lower jaw there are sort of numerous little denticles that form what looks like either sides of like a zipper and then there are gutters along the edges of the lower jaw, and they've got what looks like straw preserved in them. And it basically seems to be sort of a baleen analog. So this is probably a suspension feeding Triassic reptile that is filtering food of some kind out of water or sediment. And there are a couple of ideas. It might have been grabbing mouthfuls of plankton. It's also got indications of having quite an expandable throat. So it might have been able to like, you know, gulp in like a mouthful and throatful of like water and then sort of strain out like invertebrates it's been suggested that using the denticles it could like scrape at algae and then like feed on algae that was suspended in the water but whatever it was doing the point is that it was doing something odd and it was doing something that isn't in line with again the traditional idea when i was a student was that uh the, the the marine reptiles of the mesozoic they were all samey and all boring because all they, they didn't think to do anything other than eat fish and squid they didn't like expand <laughs> into any of these interesting you know sort of uh niches i've using that word in this episode and um it's like well wait a minute this is one that's doing it this is one that's doing something odd and it went extinct in triassic extinction event it's another one of those possible what ifs it's like could you have had like a radiation of suspension feeding sort of pseudo baleen weirdos in like the Jurassic and beyond? Um, and a couple of other weirdos, Atopodentatus, which we might have discussed. I think we discussed it when it was new. So Atopodentatus, it looks kind of like a Nothosaur. It does look Sauropterygian like, and it might be allied to them. It's from China. It's only recently published and it's it's got a hammerhead. It's uh, it's got a T-shaped skull. 
initially the two wings of the T were bent downwards in the first one that was found. So people thought it had this like bizarre, like sort mm. of inverted V-shaped mouth with teeth on the insides of the V, which would be like very strange. Turns out to be, yeah, those are like hammer, like a hammerhead. Um, it's got, I think, over 700 needle-like teeth. No clear idea as to what it was doing, but it's doing something very special. Something weird. Don't hammer mouth, I would say. Hammer mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the point, because hammerhead sharks, the mouth is underslung and not on the cephalofoil. Mm. And then there's Tanistrophaeus. <laughs> so this is, uh, yeah, I think most people that know about fossil reptiles are aware of Tanistrophaeus, Tanistrophaeus, however you want to say it. It's It looks like an animated fishing rod. It looks like an animal that's it's got like a quite a broad, chunky tail. A relatively like nondescript body for a reptile. It's got quite long paddle-like feet, hind feet. But of course, it's the neck that gets all the attention. The neck is 12 hyper-elongate cylindrical uh, tubular vertebrae with hardly any range of motion detectable in between them. Now, as is typical, as we, we've discussed this before for other animals, even if you've got a neck of 12 vertebrae, you imagine a bit of play between the vertebrae. Yes, it can. It can put a bend in its neck up, down, side to side. But it's not like putting it into S-curves or you know, bending it. It's, it is mostly keeping it as a sort of like fishing pole. And people disagree quite strenuously on what this animal is doing. It's been posited as like a fully aquatic swimmer. And some of the some of the locations its fossils are found in sort of like lean that way. Like it's found way out on uh, a Chinese archipelago that would have been. I said that Tethys is. I said that Pangaea is a is like a C shape. There's like a, a sort of big archipelago in like the north of Tethys uh, at this time, and Tanistrophaeus is known from various of those islands, like hundreds of kilometers from land when it was alive. And it's been argued recently that the anatomy of its skull is in keeping with it being an aquatic predator. It's also got features of its limbs and stuff, which suggest that it's, its overall proportions, its limbs, which make it look like a good walker. So an argument has been made that it's actually probably terrestrial and we've got all this aquatic stuff wrong. But the compromise is, of course, that it was a good walker and it was in coastal places and it was reaching out into the sea. Yeah. So this is Mark This, is, this is the um, Ashdarkad of um, Triassic weirdos. Yeah. Yeah. There's some parallels here. Is it good at flying or is it good at walking? Well, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> what is that crazy neck about? I mean, yeah, yeah obviously the analogy is almost certainly going to fall apart, but it's interesting sort of. Um, I think there is an analogy there. I've got no idea what Tanistrophius was doing, really. I think it was I think it was the um, the animated fishing rod that quite a few people have considered beforehand that it was either like it was on coastal rocks and it was like reaching out to grab fishes or squids or whatnot. And in some places is, you know, it's a good swimmer. There's no reason why it wasn't a good swimmer. That's the yeah. thing about animals. You can be so, like animals like us. We can so like, okay, we all know you don't have to be like an expert swimmer or whatnot. You know that you can stand in water, like let's say chest deep and you could catch animals if you live in depending on depended on it and if you can do that then you can swim to an island that's in theory people can swim to islands that are kilometers off the edge of the the main mainland and once you do that you know keep going make a living <laughs> so, <laughs> like, i think lots of animals have done that sort of thing it's like they've ended up like hundreds of kilometers from land if so long as there's like 
Yeah, tasty. and um, you know, tennis trophies could be evolved to be particularly good at swimming because it's it moves around with um, you know, up and down that archipelago or whatever, following the stocks of something. I mean, I don't know. You know, there's particular yeah. things they have to do. I don't know. Yep. And then the final thing I wanted to say is that, uh, yeah, we've got some Triassic fossils and some studies that have been done of them, which indicate that that not all, but most of these groups do now appear to be allied. They do form one giant clade, which has been called the marine superclade. There's this old name, Inaliosauria, that Richard Owen suggested when he thought that ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs might be allied. Um but yeah, if ichthyosaurs are related to Hupasuchians and possibly Mesosaurs, and if Sauropterygians are related to things like Atopodentatus and the Thalatosaurs that we didn't talk about and the Saurosphagus that we didn't talk about, if they're related, both of those major assemblages do seem to like share a sort of common ancestor. So it might be that most of these Mesozoic groups do actually share a long-bodied, long-snouted Hupasuchian or Mesosaur-like ancestral form in which case final thought on this in which case like again student days my thinking was always that ichthyosaurs ichthyosaurs have gone into the water from terrestrial ancestors sauropterygians have gone into the water from terrestrial ancestors in terms of like the long game that's true they ultimately do come from terrestrial reptiles but in terms of like the short term as in like 10 20 30 million years they haven't they've come from ancestors that were already amphibious or aquatic so sauropterygians and ichthyosaurs descend from ancestors that were already amphibious or aquatic and so a lot of the sort of key things that you need to make success of that lifestyle are already in place before sauropterygians or ichthyosaurs evolve it's a simple it's a simpler story isn't it i mean kind of is yeah yep again it's covered in the book ancient sea reptiles very reasonably priced we're at time we've got to go so let's wrap up unless you want to say anything else. Nope. Let's do it. Okay. Um, I believe you're on the internet. Where are you on the internet? I have a website, johnconway.art, and I am on Mastodon, john at sauropods.win. How about you, Darren? Yes. Uh, I um, uh, blog at uh, tetrawadzoology. Uh, tetzu.com which is also the website where this podcast is found <laughs> i've lost the script i had it to hand so i tweet at a death mark's not an easy thing to live with <laughs> at tetzu the end the end <laughs>